0: not sure if you've ever heard of the term refeeding syndrome or not. It's a rare and terrible condition that was first reported back at the end of World War II. And what what happened was as the Allied forces were marching their way through Germany, they discovered to their horror a series of different camps, concentration camps filled with thousands of prisoners walking around like living corpses, just emaciated from days and weeks and months of labor with very little to no food. You've seen the pictures. You've seen what it looked like. And, of course, the the first and natural response when the soldiers encounter these prisoners in this condition is, of course, to feed them. This is what they need. This is what they've been without for so long. And and yet they discovered after they began to do that, that there is something that takes place in the human body when it has gone so long without food that that very food, specifically certain kinds like carbohydrates and, and specific amounts, begins to actually do damage to the body rather than heal it. And it can cause all kinds of problems, often leading in death. And so you have this very... Sad situation, this tragic irony where where the thing that these people needed the most, the thing that these people craved, the thing that they needed to survive was the very thing that killed them. It's a terrible condition, but it's an actually, it's it's a very, very accurate picture, I believe, of the complicated nature of the tabernacle system see that the video clip there was right. It, it is a beautiful concept, this idea of God coming down to dwell amongst his people and to be with him. That's a great idea and it is beautiful and it is something that we need. We were designed to be in relationship with God. We were made for his presence and all of us need that presence. I believe that whether or not um, uh, people know that, whether or not they can see that in themselves, all of us are longing for the presence of God, and that is why people spend their life scrambling around trying to fill that void. They are dying for his presence. And yet, the difficulty is that when we encounter that presence, much like someone suffering from refeeding syndrome, it turns out that the very thing we need to survive is also lethal to us. This is, of course, because of sin. Because God is absolutely holy, as we just sang right there. And the problem is when, when holiness, specifically the absolute holiness that is God, perfect in his glory, perfect in his purity, completely other than us, when that kind of holiness gets anywhere near sin, sin just gets consumed, just gets destroyed like, like a rocket ship that flies too close to the sun It just comes apart. And that wouldn't be that big a deal if sin was something that, you know, is outside of me. If sin was merely something that I do. But the truth of the matter is that sin is more than just something I do. It's it's something that I am. It runs to the very core of my identity as a sinful human being. That's why I don't know if you've ever actually wondered this question or asked it before. Why is it that God continues to allow evil on the earth? Like why doesn't he just get rid of it? Why doesn't he just destroy it all? Why doesn't he just rid the universe of sin and evil? The good news is that one day he will. The Bible tells us that there will be one day when the glory of God covers this the universe covers creation and his holiness will come forth in such a way that all sin and all evil will be done away with forever. The bad news is that as humanity, that, can, that, that means us. We're, we're completely connected and linked to that sin. And so it is not possible to destroy sin without also destroying sinful humanity. And that's the difficulty. That's the problem here. That's what happens when holiness meets sin. And and so when you read, this is why, when you read in the Old Testament, oftentimes when people encounter just a glimpse even of the, the true fullness, the true holiness and glory of God, the response is often one of terror. Take that Isaiah 6 passage that we just read. He's there and he sees this vision of Yahweh in the temple and the glory of it fills it. And the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah's response is not, this is amazing, I could stay here forever and sing to him. His response is more like, no, 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 this can't be happening. I I shouldn't be here right now. I'm I'm a sinful man. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a sinful people. I should not be in this presence right now. See, Isaiah knows the stories. He knows the scriptures. He knows about those two priests, Nadab and Abihu, who one day got careless as they walked into the presence of God and fire came out and consumed them both right there. He knows about Uzzah, the man who was one day walking alongside the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God was said to dwell, right above the mercy seat. And he's walking along, and it's on a cart. And as the cart starts to wobble, Uzzah mindlessly puts his hand out to steady it. And as soon as he touches the Ark, he dies on the spot. He knows about Beth Shemesh, that town where one day 70 men got curious and they opened up the ark to look inside of it. And the text says that all 70 of them were struck down by God. And as the town of Beth Shemesh mourned, they said these words, who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And it's this holy God that is now making his way down into the middle of his people. And the only way that that does not end in absolute disaster, the only way for that to work is that their sins somehow need to be taken care of, somehow need to be gotten rid of, and, and that's where the sacrificial system comes in. The system that God gave them whereby their sins could be treated, whereby their sins could be taken from them. And you know how it works, that that when a person sinned, that they could come and in place of their own life, they could come and they could offer an animal, a goat or a lamb or whatever. They could offer that animal, they could come to the tabernacle and offer it there to die in their place. But, But the key words are to the tabernacle, not in the tabernacle. Even with the sacrificial system in place, no one was allowed to just walk into the tent of meeting, the place where God meets man. No one except for the priests, this specific people that he set aside to be sort of a buffer between sinful humanity and himself. And so the priests would take the sacrifice, and they could sacrifice it on the altar, and they could walk into the tabernacle itself. Well partway into the tabernacle. They could not go into the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and where, as we said, the presence of God dwelled. And so they would take these sacrifices to the tabernacle day after day and week after week and month after month, thousands of sacrifices being offered on behalf of the sins of the people in order to make way for them to be in the presence of God, but there are at least two problems. The first is that there's really like no way for, for me to be able to account for, to be able to fully remember or maybe even be aware of all the sins in my life. There's no way I can keep up. I can't continue to just keep offering these sacrifices about things I may not even know about. Surely there are sins slipping through the cracks here. And the the other problem is as we read the Bible, what what appears to be taking place as sins are brought before the tabernacle, as the uncleanness and the impurity of these people are brought in the form of their sacrifices, it's actually polluting the tabernacle itself, the tent of meeting. Something needs to be done to take care of both of these problems. And so we come to what is most likely the most significant and important day of the Jewish calendar, the Jewish year for them. It's significant because of what it's accomplished, but we also see that it's significant because of its placement. See, Leviticus, in the Pentateuch, Leviticus sits at the center of those five books, the books of law. And then there are a number of people who, through reading Leviticus, have noticed that it seems to be laid out in what we would call a a chiastic or a chiasm pattern, that is kind of a mirroring pattern. And so it's set up in this way where the first section of Leviticus deals with um, rituals, the different rituals that people would go through, the holy practices to keep them holy. Also, the last section of Leviticus appears to be dealing with rituals. The next section of Leviticus deals with the priesthood. Also, the next to last section of Leviticus deals with the priesthood. And then the third section there in the middle deals with issues of purity. And also the third from the end deals with issues of purity. And then right in the middle of those six sections is Leviticus 16, describing and outlining what is known as the Day of Atonement. This is the day that God gives to his people to take care of this issue of sin and the sin pollution that takes place from the nation, from the community, towards the tabernacle itself. And this is where we're going to be today for a while in Leviticus 16, if you want to turn there, or it will be on the screens for you to be able to read. We'll walk through not all of it, but much of it in describing what was taking place on that day and why it mattered. Leviticus 16, verses 1 through 2. Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before Yahweh and died. Those two priests, Nadab and Abihu, they were Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother. They were his sons. We don't actually know specifically. The text doesn't even specify what it was that got them killed. It just says they, they offered unauthorized fire. What, what appears to be happening, as it's told in Leviticus 10, there's some indication that they may have been drunk when they walked in. And, and this text here is about to make it sound like because of their drunkenness that they actually walked into that most holy place, the holy of holies, which they were not allowed to do. This is what it says And Yahweh said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Here's what we see as we jump into the day of atonement, what this is built on. Um, First of all, this, there is nothing about man's approach to God that is up to man. Like when this is being written in this situation, the priests, the the people themselves, even Moses himself decided nothing about who went before the presence of God. And they decided nothing about when that person went and they decided nothing about how that person went. That was all God's choice and design and decision. The who was only one man and that is the high priest himself. And the when was only one day of year, this day, the day of atonement, that he could go behind the veil there before the Ark of the Covenant. The how is what we're about to walk through right now. Verses three through five, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and shall have the linen undergarments on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist, and wear the linen turban, these are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water, and then put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. So we see a couple things. First off, the high priest himself, even when he even though he is set apart by God to be the go The high priest himself cannot come before God without a sacrifice. And we see that he enters in a spirit of absolute humility. See, the clothes are, are significant because the high priest throughout the rest of the year was always dressed in some very ornate clothing. Looked almost like royalty as he did the work for God for the people. But when he's not just going to the people, on the day that he goes in before God himself, he changes into simple linen garments in a show of humility and reverence for this holy God. And he walks back in on that day. Now, here are the animals that get listed. For himself, the priest is to bring a bull and a ram for the burnt offering. For the people of Israel, he brings two goats and a ram for a burnt offering. This is what it says in verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. That is for the rest of the priests. Now, here's what this practice would have looked like, and the chapter will outline um, a little bit further as we go, but I'll just kind of sum up. What, what happens is the, the, the high priest would come with this bull, and he would slaughter it and let the blood pour out there in front of the tabernacle, and then before he takes that in, before he goes in, the first thing he does is he goes and he grabs two handfuls of incense inside the tabernacle, and he grabs a censer full of hot coals, and he goes and he brings those things together inside the holy of holy to make a cloud of smoke because the presence of God is there and the cloud is there to cover his presence. And this is what it says, so that Aaron will not die. He can't even look at him. He would kill him. And so he brings in this incense to to fill the room with smoke. And then he goes out and he gets the blood and he takes the blood and he would walk up to the Ark of the Covenant, to the front of it there, and he would dip his fingers in the blood and sprinkle it one time on the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would sprinkle it seven times on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would walk out and move into the section With the goats. Verse 7. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for Yahweh and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So he takes these two goats and these will be for the people and and he casts lots for them to determine which one is going to be which. Whichever one the lot falls for Yahweh what Aaron does is he goes and he slaughters that goat just like the bull. Also like the bull he takes the blood of that goat and he brings it behind the veil into the most holy place sprinkles it one time on the top of the ark. Seven times on the ground before it and then after that he begins to move out into the the rest of the tent, and he begins to cleanse the articles there with with the blood of the goat. Then he takes both the blood of the goat and the blood of the bull, and he goes out into the outer court, and he begins to cleanse the altar, putting the blood on top of the altar where the sacrifices were made day after day. This is to remove the uncleanness, the impurity of all the sins that have come through the sacrifices. He cleanses the altar with that blood. After that, he takes this goat for Azazel. Now, I know what you're thinking. What or who is Azazel? Where where do we get this name? What is this talking about? And the answer is nobody knows for sure. There are actually a few different possibilities that people have looked at. One is they think that Azazel is actually a term for the goat. You've heard this phrase, scapegoat. Right, Well That comes from, you may even have it in your translation, um, that it says that the second goat will be not to Azazel, it says in yours, it will be for the scapegoat. It will be to become the scapegoat. There's some people who think that that's what that word is, kind of a, a weird um, description of that. It doesn't look like it, actually. More than likely, that's kind of a mistranslation because Azazel seems to be like a proper name. And so some people think that maybe Azazel is the name of a location, a place where this goat is supposed to be led out to. And others think that Azazel may in fact be a supernatural being of some kind, probably a demon or maybe even Satan himself like a term for Satan himself. In which case, what is about to happen would be, and you'll notice, this goat is not going to be sacrificed because there are very strict um, rules in the lyrical law that, that you do not sacrifice to anyone or anything but Yahweh. This goat will be led out with the sins, we'll see in just a second, of the people. And, and if Azazel is a demon or Satan himself, then what is happening is they are returning the sins from where they came from. It came from him, and we're sending him back to him now. Now, we don't know, ultimately, what or who Azazel is. We don't know because the text isn't all that concerned to tell us. It's much more concerned with what the goat is actually doing and what's being accomplished in this moment. The second goat is led there before the tabernacle, and the high priest takes both hands, and he lays them on the head of the goat. And as he does that, he confesses, it says in the text, he confesses over the goat all the sins and all the iniquities and all the transgressions of the people of Israel, thereby transferring those things to the goat itself. And then there is what's called a man in readiness who is waiting there. And as after the sins have been transferred over to this goat, that man leads this goat out into the wilderness into a remote place, it says, somewhere where it cannot ever come back. And the sins of Israel go with it. What you have represented by these two goats is the two key aspects of atonement. We call them propitiation and expiation. Propitiation and expiation. Propitiation takes place with the first goat. That is where this goat takes the punishment, the wrath that was supposed to come down on the people for their sin, the wrath comes down on the goat. And so God's wrath is absorbed or turned aside by this goat. That's propitiation. Their sins are now punished in the goat. Expiation is what takes place with the second goat where the sins are not only punished from that one but now those Sins are removed and taken away. You see, it's, it's one thing to do a crime and then be punished for it and do your time and then be, you know, you've, you've done your time and you're done. It's one thing to kind of take care of that. It's another thing to be punished for it and then to have that removed from the record as though it never happened before. Both of these things take place on the Day of Atonement. The punishment for sin is taken by one goat and the removal of sins is done by the others. Propitiation and expiation, working together to atone for God's people. After all of this, the steps aren't done. The process isn't over. The high priest will go back into the sanctuary where he bathes and he changes back into his normal clothes. And then he comes out and he offers the ram as the burnt offering that was for him. And the ram that was the burnt offering for the people as a a supplementary offering. Burnt offerings were brought all throughout the year. But these two were, were made again on this day of atonement. And then he burns up all the fat from the goat that was offered. And then they take the carcasses of both the bull and the goat, and there's another man who's waiting, and he hauls those carcasses outside of the city, and his job is to burn them completely up so that there's nothing left of them. And after he does that, then that man must change and wash his clothes and bathe himself before he is allowed to come back into the community. Likewise, the man in readiness who took the goat out into the wilderness, he is not allowed to enter back into the community until he changes and washes his clothes and bathes himself. Then he is allowed to come back as well. But it's not just these men, the the two men taking things outside the camp and the high priest. They're not the only ones who are actually involved in this day of atonement. Actually, the entire community, the entire nation is. Here's what it says in verses 29 to 31. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. Either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before Yahweh from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. So, what he says to them is, You are to afflict yourselves during these days. That basically just means you are to bring a spirit and an attitude and some actions of contrition. Uh, basically, uh, fasting and praying during that day. And there's no, there's no working. You don't go about your business as usual on the day of atonement while the high priest does his thing. No, the whole community reflects on their sin, fasts and prays and waits for the day when all that sin will be removed. All of it coming together on this big, important day, the day of atonement. Do you see the great links that are gone to by both God and man to make it possible for these two entities to dwell together? Do you see how much work, how much effort, how much detail is involved in making it possible for sinful humanity to be with holy divinity together? As I count them, there are at least 25 different steps on the Day of Atonement that must be followed to a T. 25 different steps marked off that must be taken care of Perfectly, in order for this to work. There is bathing and there's changing and washing of clothes and there's sprinkling of blood and there's sacrificing of multiple animals and there's prayer and there's fasting and there's confession and there's all kinds of things. And do you want to know what's really, really crazy about all of that? What's really crazy is that none of that did anything for them. like when the high priest takes the blood of the bull into the most holy place and he sprinkles it on the ark to atone for his sins. That, that blood wasn't actually taking away his sins. And when the goat was slaughtered in its blood, they did the same thing for the people of Israel. It wasn't actually taking away any of their sins. Their sins weren't actually on a goat being taken out into the wilderness. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. unless you think I'm crazy, I'm actually just quoting Scripture to you. This is Hebrews 10.4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin can't be done because you can't pay for human sin with the life of an animal. Only thing that can pay for human sin is human life. So the blood can't do anything there. The, The goat can't do anything. The sacrifices can't do anything in that moment. So question, what was the point What in the world is happening on the Day of Atonement if it's not actually atoning for sin? Why are they jumping through all these hoops? Was it some kind of crazy test by God? Was the whole thing pointless? No, it wasn't pointless. Actually, I I should probably rephrase what I said just a moment ago. I, I believe that actual atonement was taking place on the Day of Atonement. It's just that the power for atonement was not in those sacrifices, The power for removing of those sins had nothing to do with the animal's blood. It could not do that thing. Even the Old Testament writers actually recognize this. You'll see places where David or Samuel or or Isaiah will mention that you can't just Sin and do whatever you want and then just go offer an animal as though there's something magic in the blood of an animal that takes things away. But that doesn't work. The reality is that all of those sacrifices, even those ones that were taking place on the Day of Atonement, were actually just pointers to a greater reality that was taking place. And we don't actually even know how aware of this the people were at that time. But all of those things were actually pointing to something bigger, something deeper, something greater, and and we see little hints of this coming as we read through the prophets, like there's that famous chapter, Isaiah 53, where Isaiah talks about the fact that one day there will be a human being who comes, and that that human will, like the first goat, take the punishment that was due for us. It says this, the punishment that brings us peace will be laid upon him. And, and like the second goat, Yahweh will lay on him all the iniquities of us so that he can take those things away from us. There were hints that one day something bigger, something greater would happen. And then about 700 years later, it did. When Jesus comes, fully God but also fully human, which is key, fully human so he is able to go to the cross and pay for human sin on the cross Pay the penalty for it. Um, pay the the punishment that was due for them, becoming both propitiation and expiation to cover all of those sins. This is how Paul describes it in Romans three. Verses 21 through 26, this is an amazing text. Paul is talking in Romans 2 and in Romans 3 about how the law could never actually save a person, could never actually make a person right so that they could come to a holy God. Not by circumcision, not by the sacrifices, not by dietary restrictions. None of those things could make a person right. And then he says this in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This was to show God's righteousness, and this is key right here, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins, the sins committed under the old covenant. It was to show his righteousness as at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who puts his faith in Jesus. See, it was never animals that was allowing the priest to walk into God's presence. It was never goat's blood or bull's blood that allowed the people's sins to be taken away. No, no, no. What allowed that was actually divine forbearance. God in his mercy withholding his wrath that all of those people deserved, withholding it until one day when his son would come and then he poured out all the wrath that Moses deserved and that Aaron deserved and that David deserved and that you and I deserved, poured it all out on Jesus himself. That's the answer to the question how does God destroy sin without destroying us he takes our sin and he places it on someone who is ultimately indestructible and then he destroys it in him that is where propitiation comes from Jesus taking the punishment for our sin that is expiation our sins removed from us as far as the East is from the West and that is what the Day of Atonement was looking forward to, was pointing forward to for all those years. Today, we have our own ceremony, our own ritual. The Day of Atonement pointed forward to Jesus and his death. Ours points back to it. We call it communion a time for us to come together and and as a body reflect on this great sacrifice that Jesus made for us so that we as sinful human beings could have what we were made for, the presence of God. So we're going to celebrate that here in just a moment. So for those of you who are serving communion, I want to invite you to stand and, and, and go grab the trays. You don't have to wait. As soon as you get them, you can come down and begin serving them and passing them out. It's worth stating. It's worth knowing. It's worth remembering that the God that we worship today The God that you sang to today, the God in whose presence we sit is the same God as the Old Testament. It's the same God whose fire came out of the tabernacle and consumed two priests one day for being careless. It's the same God that Aaron was not allowed to look on lest he die. It's the same God, it's the same holiness and his standards have not been lowered any since they were there. The only difference is that those standards have now been met In Jesus that I don't come before him by anything I've done I've come before a holy God because I'm actually no longer sinful I come before him because I am holy because of what Jesus has done for me it's just because of what Jesus has done that we don't wait anxiously outside the tent anymore we actually We actually have a new word for the way we approach God, one that I don't know if anybody in the Old Covenant would have been able to use. The word is confidence. I don't know if Aaron, with his knees shaking together as he snuck behind the tent, putting the smoke there and hoping that he doesn't actually catch a glimpse of Yahweh, I don't know if confidence was a word he could have ever used as he walked into that tabernacle. I don't know if confidence is a word that any of the people could have had as they sat outside the tent hoping that their high priest comes out alive. As they watch the goat go off into the sunset and going, one more year taken care of, I hope we make it to the next. Confidence was not a word that they Got to hold to very often, but it's a word that we get now, not only a confidence that sins are taken care of, but a confidence that says you no longer have to wait outside the tent. You can go right in because of the blood of Jesus, because he has already ma- made a way, because he's opened it up for us. This is the way Hebrews 4 or Hebrews 10 describes it. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers... Because of that, it's because of what Jesus has done that we have confidence. Because of that, that we actually take part in this ritual that we have right now today. And so for that, you can take the bread in your hands. It is because of this bread that we stand in the presence of God with confidence and assurance. Take and eat, brothers and sisters. And you can take the cup, the cup that represents the blood poured out, that atoned for all the sins that bull's blood and goat's blood could never atone for, atone for every sin of ours for good, so that we can come into the most holy place before God with assurance. So let's take with confidence assurance, brothers and sisters. Now here's the trick. The question is, how do we do this? How do we hold confidence without it becoming flippancy? Because it is the same God. And and my heart for us this week is that these truths about all that Jesus has done, about our great sin, and about his great holiness. That all these truths about how that's been taken care of in Jesus would not propel us into flippancy or complacency, but actually propel us into a greater gratitude and a greater joy and a greater desire to stand in awe of God's holiness. I'm going to pray for that and ask the Holy Spirit to do what we cannot. Let's do that now. Dear Father, it is true. Yahweh, it is true that you are absolutely holy. And that doesn't change because Jesus came. He just reveals how holy you are, how much we needed a sacrifice to make us be able to draw near to you. My heart, Lord, is, is this, that you would help us to see you in your holiness. You would help us to see you in and your beauty, and you would also help us to see your love in Christ, that those things would well up in us for greater affection and greater love for you, that they would lead us to desire holiness all the more. And I ask you this because um, we can't make that happen in us. That's a work of your spirit, and so I ask you that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.